A warm welcome to First Move. Great to be with you this Tuesday, where Wall Street's back after the Labor Day break, though summer's not over and New York's set to bake. The bulls, meanwhile, hope a sleeping IPO market can be jostled awake with chip leader arm selling a stake. And over in Kenya, climate officials reiterate ignoring investment in Africa's a mistake. President Ruto setting the tone on day two of the continent's first ever climate summit by proposing a debt interest moratorium if the cash is used to fund climate projects. Makes perfect sense to me, but will the former United Nations Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, who's also in Nairobi for these talks, be on board? Well, he believes the current international funding of around $53 billion a year for Africa must rise tenfold. Yes, you heard me right. We'll be discussing that shortly. And the battle to heal the planet does not end there. We'll be joined later in the show by the CEO of German tech giant ZF Group to discuss its work in electric mobility and as a supplier of software and EV systems to car makers all over the globe. ZF is also working on a rare earth mineral free electric motor. So we'll get the details on that too. Now, in the meantime, global markets are in need of a charge or at least some kind of jump start. We're looking at a softer start, as you can see there in the United States, following a cautious tone and handover from Europe to September. Of course, traditionally a weaker month for stock market performance. We've got to bear that in mind. Pay attention too to rising energy prices. Crude hovering now near nine-month highs on expectations that OPEC Plus will keep production cuts in place. Oil higher even with the uncertainty over China's economic trajectory. We'll be discussing that later on the show too. But first, the Kremlin is refusing to comment on a potential meeting between President Vladimir Putin and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. U.S. officials believe that Kim may travel to Russia to discuss providing weapons and ammunition. The U.S. National Security Council warned that arms talks are actively advancing, quote. And Paula Hancocks joins us now on this. Paula, a big deal for one reason, simply that the North Korean leader doesn't often travel. And it's expected, according to some reporting, to happen on the eastern coast, I believe, of Russia. The big question for me is, what does Russia have, what does North Korea have, forgive me, that Russia needs? Well, at this point, Julia, Russia needs ammunition. It needs certain types of ammunition for its war in Ukraine. We have heard uh, that they are running low, and we know from uh, U.S. officials and also from South Korean intelligence officials that North Korea appears willing uh, to be able to give Russia what it needs. For, for example, uh, certain types of ammunition. There is a fair amount of interoperability between uh, the, uh, the weapons of both countries. So there are certain uh, types of ammunition which would be able to be sent to Moscow and then they would be able to be used by uh, Russian weapons almost immediately. So there is uh, that crossover when it comes to the weapons technology there. Uh, but of course, North Korea doesn't do anything for free. So what does North Korea get out of this? Uh, and they potentially, according to US officials, would get certain technical know-how. Uh, we know that they are looking for a, a success when it comes to putting a military satellite uh, into space. They've tried twice in recent months. Both times have failed, uh, including one just last month. So that's, US officials say, is a potential uh, payoff for North Korea. And then also something like su a nuclear-powered uh, submarine 
is something that North Korea has said that it would like. It's on Kim Jong-un's wish list uh, that he gave just a couple of years ago, but they don't have that technological know-how. So both sides do stand to get a fair bit out of any potential arms deal. And of course, it's not just militarily, it's also politically. Kim Jong-un moving closer uh, to Russia allows him to counter the influence that China has when it comes to North Korea. Uh, and it also allows him to have uh, an ally which is a significant uh, ally in the world. You saw just four years ago, Kim Jong-un went to Vladivostok and met Kim Jong, uh, met uh, Vladimir Putin. But of course, the relationship has changed now. There is uh, a lot more that Kim Jong-un can now do for Vladimir Putin. So in that respect, having a leader of such a significant nation needing him and needing what he can provide Provide, uh, is something that Kim Jong-un is not used to. So that's also a benefit uh, for North Korea. And of course, they are united by a common enemy. They are united uh, by the United States. The fact that they both want an alternative world order. They want uh, a world where the US is less powerful. Uh, so they are clubbing together with these alliances. And also, a world where the United Nations Security Council resolutions are more difficult to be imposed. These are resolutions against North Korea, for example, that Russia signed on to. Uh, but as it is in the Security Council, it will uh, and has been vetoing anything that would punish North Korea and its recent flurry of testing. Julia? Yes, timing and leverage is everything. Paula Hancocks, thank you for that. Meanwhile, Russia has made two demands in talks over renewing the Ukrainian grain deal. Turkish President Erdogan says Russia wants one of its banks reconnected to the international payment system and wants sanctions relaxed over the insurance of ships. Kyiv is calling the Kremlin's conditions, quote, blackmail. Vladimir Putin said on Monday that Moscow won't re-enter the agreement until Western restrictions on Russia's agricultural exports are lifted. Sam Abdelaziz joins us now. Sam, I can understand Russia's position on this. The risk, of course, for the West is if you relax some of the details on these sanctions, it leaves them open to further abuse. What more do we know about these conditions? Look, fundamentally, there was high hopes for uh, this meeting in Sochi between President Putin and President Erdogan. But we do not seem really any closer to a green deal uh, that would unblock those ports. In fact, President Putin seemed to be willing to take unilateral action, saying that Russia was working on its own deal with six African states to provide them with a million tons of grain for free. President Erdogan also stepping out of that meeting, pushing on the Ukrainian side, saying that it needs to soften its stance. And as you mentioned, President Putin blames the West for the collapse of this deal, saying that those promises that agricultural exports would be eased uh, have not materialized for Russia. That is his accusation towards the West. There's also a few fundamental issues we have to remember here. When this deal was pulled together several months ago, it was extremely serious to find that breakthrough. You were seeing inflation skyrocketing prices on food in places in North Africa, in the Middle East. Since that time, food prices have stabilized somewhat. That's not to say that countries like Egypt and Somalia haven't suffered greatly due to this blockade, but it does mean that there is less pressure. And then you also have to remember the factors on the ground here, Julia. Without a deal, Ukraine says that Moscow has been intensifying its attacks on ports along the Danube River, along the Black Sea, as a way of essentially making food a token, a bargaining chip in this conflict. Yes.
But you do raise a great point, I think, that uh, it does help, actually, unfortunately, as people suffer if prices are rising dramatically because it ups the stakes. Summer of Delzies, there, thank you very much for that. Turning now to the slowdown hitting the world's second largest economy, China. Beijing today reporting that growth in the services sector slumped to an eight-month low in August. The news helping to drag Chinese shares lower, as you can see there. The Hang Seng falling more than 2%. All this as troubled property developer Country Garden dodges default yet again. That's the second time in four days. Anna Stewart joins us on this. Anna, it's a continuation of our conversation from yesterday. And I believe this is the two international bonds that we were talking about that were in the grace period. It's a case of whack-a-mole. Is the worst (laughs) over? Whack-a-mole, I love it. Well, the worst is over, at least for this week. I mean, mm. you're right. This was the, uh, the overdue payments that were missed several weeks ago. They had a 30-day grace period. They have now paid. I think maybe they just got that breathing space they needed from yesterday's debt extension. So this payment totals $22.5 million. It's avoided default this week. The question is, what comes next? Now, we got a new line out today from a state-owned media outlet in China saying they're also seeking approval from creditors to have a debt payment extension on eight onshore bonds. They're all due this year. It totals $1.5 billion. So this is what they're doing right now. And there's a meeting on Thursday with those creditors and a vote. So perhaps they can also extend that. The question at this stage, though, is, is this giving them even more breathing space so they can handle their debts over the coming years? Or is this just kicking the can down the road? And how long will creditors be okay to extend all of these debt repayments? Yeah, it's such a great question. We're still talking about a company that reported, what, a $7 billion loss Mm. in the first half of this year in a sector that we know is deeply embattled. It's 25 to, what, 30 percent of the broader economy, the the property sector. And the broader economy is troubled, too, as the survey data overnight suggests. Mm. Yeah, latest survey data. This is the private survey of business activity in the services sector uh, for August. It came in at 51.8. So it's not actually in contractionary territory at this stage. But compared to July, where there was 54.1, it's a significant fall. It makes you question, of course, consumer sentiment within China. And we know export demand from outside of China has been weak just generally adds to what is a really bleak economic picture in China. I mean, just to recap, the economy barely grew in the second quarter. It hit deflation in July. It has an issue with employment, particularly with youth unemployment. They're not even publishing the data around that. And this is for an aging population. So huge structural issues, huge economic headwinds. It is a lot for Beijing to digest. So we've had a lot of policy updates on the property market. But you wonder whether that really at this stage is a drop in the ocean. Can it do enough to stimulate uh, demand within China? Yeah, great questions. As always, Anna Stewart, thank you so much for that. Now from Asia to Africa, where U.S. climate envoy John Kerry has just announced an additional $30 million to help countries to adapt to climate change. First $20 million to the Africa Adaptation Initiative for the Food Security Accelerator, and that will invest in agricultural businesses and help them create their own independent climate-resilient supply chains. Second, $10 million will go to the Climate Resilient Adaptation Finance and Technology Transfer Facility to scale technologies so that we can advance adaptation efforts like cold chain storage which uh, would help maintain the quality and the safety of food from the farm all the way 
to the homes of people in the world. You may have already read the banner. Meanwhile, the UAE has pledged $4.5 billion to clean energy initiatives in Africa. Larry Madoa is still in Nairobi for us. Actually, Larry, it's hats off to President Ruto once again um, in the Kenyan host when he said, if you don't solve the debt issue, you can't solve the climate issue. I saw that he'd suggested um, a sort of moratorium on interest payments on debt. I think they pay around $8 billion a year. He said, look, give us a moratorium and we'll spend that on uh, mitigation and adaption. Now we're talking, Larry. Is that kind of conversation being had there? There are people who are talking about these conversations and President Ruta, to his credit, has been very bold in his statements in this regard. The One Campaign put out a report that says because African countries can't often access cheaper funding from the World Bank, they're paying up to 500 times more because of these euro bonds that keep floating, which means that they cannot invest enough in climate adaptation. And that is a real crisis. But I think the big announcement here is definitely from the UAE, ahead of COP28, which they're hosting $4.5 billion to support clean energy projects on the continent. And they say this is likely to unlock another $12.5 billion from other partners. If that does come through, that is a huge, huge um, investment in Africa's clean energy potential, which goes to something that the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, talked about, that the world needs to help Africa become a renewable energy superpower because the resources are all here. However, in the last two decades, only 2% of renewable energy investments have come to Africa. So that is the opportunity. Even though the resources are here, the money is not coming. And I think announcements like those from the UAE about this $4.5 billion help unlock a lot more. And it's the kind of partnerships that President Ruto and the other African leaders here are looking for. You've seen President Salva Kiir from South Sudan, President Samir Sloh, Hassan of, of Tanzania, and a whole host of other leaders from Mozambique and across the continent, all trying to bring a united voice ahead of COP28 and especially African countries pushing for that funding for adaptation because even though the continent accounts for only 3% of greenhouse gas emissions, the worst impact of the climate crisis is here on the continent. Harry, do you get a sense of um, a lack of trust, whether it's when you see these big announcements of money, when indeed the money actually follows through, or if we sort of go back in history of some of the cops where, I mean, back in Copenhagen where $100 billion a year was promised and actually those commitments were never really fulfilled. There's sort of a, a lack of trust of, to your point, not just who's responsible for the admissions and who's suffering most as a result, but um, whether the promises are actually fulfilled. These are all promissory notes, right, uh, Julia, because... Again, even the $4.5 billion from the UAE is a pledge. And I think that word is doing the heavy lifting here. They're not saying you can access this money tomorrow or next week or next month. It's a pledge that's probably going to be phased out over time. And with a lot of these commitments for climate financing, with loss and damage and adaptation, there's very big commitments going back several COPs back. But such a tiny amount of that money actually makes it out here. And many of the African leaders say we are tired of these commitments. We are tired of all the talk. The time for action is now because the longer you wait, the people here are getting affected. People are dying. People are having to move. People are having their lives appended. And you can't just keep committing things. You've got to start bringing in the actual money. So we've got to spend it to, to support people's lives. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Larry, good to have you. Thank you so much for that. More First Move after this. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Leaders from Southeast Asian nations have gathered in Jakarta for the ASEAN summit. This meeting comes amid rifts between member states over stalled peace efforts in Myanmar. Tensions on the Korean Peninsula and Taiwan also likely to be discussed. Stephen Jang has the latest from Beijing. Myanmar and several issues involving China very much uh, looming large over this uh, summit. Now, remember, Myanmar is still very much uh, in crisis mode more than two years after the military there overthrew the democratically elected government of Aung San Suu Kyi in a bloody coup. And several ASEAN members, especially the Philippines and Vietnam, have had long-standing territorial disputes with Beijing over the South China Sea with some uh, recent flare-ups in the region. For example, when Chinese coast guards used water cannons to prevent prevent the Philippines from supplying one of their uh, ships there. And also Vietnam actually banning the movie Barbie over a map purportedly showing the Chinese claim. And then, of course, there is this dilemma faced by a growing number of countries around the world, but especially ASEAN members, given their very close economic and trade ties with Beijing, that is the role and choice in this increasingly heated U.S.-China competition with tension very much remaining high between Beijing and Washington. So it is against this backdrop that U.S. President Joe Biden's absence is made more conspicuous given that Mr. Biden has in the past attended a summit in person. Now, uh, that has led to some analysts to question the bloc's relevance and the White House priority in this region. Now, the U.S. Uh, government uh, very much pushing back this notion, pointing to uh, Mr. Biden's track record and also that he actually hosted eight of the 10 ASEAN leaders in the White House just last year. Now, in this place, U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris is attending meetings in Jakarta. And coincidentally, China is also sending its number two leader, Premier Li Chiang, to Jakarta. So a lot of scrutiny over all these potential interactions between all the leaders in the next few days at a time when the ASEAN leaders very much trying to present an image of unity and relevance uh, with a focus on economic growth in this increasingly fractured world. Stephen Jiang, CNN, Beijing. And staying in the region, Japan is giving more financial support to its fishing industry after China banned Japanese seafood. That ban is in response to the release of treated radioactive wastewater from the crippled Fukushima nuclear plant. Ivan Watson has more. Backlash in China over Japan's decision to release treated nuclear wastewater from the Fukushima power plant into the Pacific Ocean. The Chinese government banning all Japanese seafood imports to prevent the risk of radioactive contamination and to protect the health of Chinese consumers. Fears over Fukushima prompting panic buying of salt in several cities until authorities reassured the public China consumes mined salt more than sea salt. 
ripple effects also felt here at a Japanese food court in Beijing. I told my daughter that we should go and eat some seafood now while it's still safe, and let's not eat it anymore afterwards. Nothing from the ocean is edible from now on. Fears echoed by her daughter. Of course, first seafood will be affected, but other crops and food will also be affected later on. It's only a matter of time. The nuclear controversy potentially crippling business for this sushi chef. Some customers are disgusted by this news. They no longer want to eat Japanese food, he says. His once busy restaurant now largely empty. After the pandemic, our business this year has not recovered yet, and now with this news from Japan, our business is worse, he says. Some scientists argue these fears are unfounded. The International Atomic Energy Agency says Japan's plan to release wastewater is in line with IAEA standards. Our cooperation and our presence will help build confidence in Japan and beyond that the water disposal is carried out without an adverse impact on human health and the environment. And yet the heavily censored Chinese internet still bubbles with anger at Japan, including prank calls harassing Japanese businesses. This group of young people are purportedly calling random numbers in Japan. Why do you release nuclear wastewater into the ocean? This young man shouts. <laughs> Elsewhere, a Chinese restaurant owner makes a show of tearing down Japanese decorations at his Japanese restaurant. The Chinese government is tolerating these displays of anger at Japan tacitly encouraging nationalist fervor, even if it results in empty restaurants at a time when China is increasingly suffering from economic uncertainty. Ivan Watson, CNN, Hong Kong. And still to come, the human trafficking network that's sending Cubans to fight in Ukraine. We're live in Havana next. Welcome back to First Move. Cuba has uncovered a human trafficking ring that recruits its citizens to fight for Russia in Ukraine. Cuban authorities say they're, quote, working to neutralize and dismantle the network. Patrick Ottman joins us now from Havana. Patrick, do we have any sense of the numbers of people that might be involved and who might be behind this network? Details are, are really quite uh, fuzzy still, Julia, and, and it really is a striking statement because up until now, Cuba has been a staunch defender of uh, Russia's war in Ukraine, saying that it's the U.S. and it's the West, uh, NATO, uh, that started this war that forced Russia's hand. And so to uh, see the statement that was released late last night by Cuba's uh, Ministry uh, of Foreign Affairs uh, really caught uh, a number of a number of falls uh, this by surprise because uh, they are essentially saying Cuban citizens are not permitted to go fight in this war. And while they're not naming the Russian government uh, per se, uh, they're making it very clear that these Cubans are, are fighting on Russia's side. And of course, uh, it really is impossible to imagine that the Russian government would not be aware uh, that Cuban citizens were being enticed or duped to go fight 
uh, for Russia. But over the last few, few days, there have been reports of Cuba's, Cuban citizens complaining that uh, they were tricked into fighting for Russia, that they were promised that they would be working on bases, that they wouldn't be on the front lines. And then lo and behold, once they arrived in Ru Russia, they were given a weapon and told to go fight. So uh, a lot to be determined how many people uh, were uh, fighting for Russia, how many Cubans, you know, is it dozens, is it hundreds, how the Cubans uh, who are currently either in Russia or Ukraine uh, could be returned to Cuba if they do want to come home. Uh, but the Cuban government, despite uh, the aid that Russia supplies this island, the crucial aid that Russia supplies this island, making it very clear that they do not allow their citizens to take part in this war. And so uh, this will continue to develop. Yeah. Any further details, we will bring them to our viewers. Patrick Ottman for now in Havana. Thank you for that. Now, when leaders of the world's largest economies meet for the G20 summit in New Delhi later this week, they'll arrive to a neighborhood uprooted just for them. The houses of thousands of poor families that stood near the summit site have been demolished and replaced by ornate fountains and leafy green plants. Vedika Sood spoke with some of those who've been forcefully displaced. A bulldozer tears down Savita's home in Delhi. Helpless and distraught, she looks on, recording on her mobile. Her daughters, just off camera, try comforting her. Stop crying, mother, or you'll fall sick, they say. Savita is just one of tens of thousands who have been rendered homeless in the lead-up to the big G20 meet in Delhi, where Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi will want to be seen as the voice of the Global South. When world leaders arrive in New Delhi this weekend, they won't see some of the slums that would have fallen on their route. Instead, what they will see is this. Statues and fountains that are part of the government's massive beautification drive that activists say have displaced the poor. <laughs> Almost three months after this mass demolition drive, we meet Savita. She's as inconsolable as she was on the morning bulldozers rolled into the neighborhood. Our children were hungry, they were thirsty, we had no place to cook after they demolished our homes, she says. Amid the rubble, Savita's family camped under a tarpaulin sheet. They were homeless for almost six weeks. We knew we were building our homes in an unauthorized colony, but people have been living here for over 40 years now. Why didn't authorities demolish these homes earlier? Why now? she asks. In a document submitted in court, the Delhi government stated it intends to rehabilitate those impacted by the eviction in new homes. But that hasn't happened. Human rights activist Harsh Mandar says the Modi government is showing no urgency in rehabilitating the poor. What strikes me most is that India, the Indian, Indian state, is ashamed of ostensible poverty. It doesn't want poverty to be visible uh, to people who come here. In July, the Indian government, in a written response in parliament, denied any links between the demolitions of homes and the G20 summit. CNN has reached out to both the Delhi and central governments. We are yet to receive a response. About 200 meters away from the G20 summit venue, Jayanti Devi scavenges for the buried remains of her belongings under the rubble of her home. 
Our home, a small eatery, a grocery store, everything was destroyed, she says. People say authorities have cleared out this settlement because of the G20 summit. She now runs a tea stall along with her husband. Since June, they've been spending nights in this makeshift shelter. We're so angry, but our poverty makes us powerless. We can't speak up, says Jayanti. Now plants shroud the rubble that's still scattered around Jayanti Devi's home. High walls have cordoned off the land where Savitha once lived. Amidst the noise and grandeur, the voices of the marginalized grow even softer. Edika Sood, CNN, New Delhi. Now coming up on First Move, sustainable sustainability, developing the next generation of electric motors, but without rare earth minerals. We'll discuss transport innovation with the CEO of tech giant ZF Group after this. The assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protest that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back to First Move with a more in-depth take on reducing emissions in the transport sector. Now, you may or may not have heard of ZF Group, but you've certainly heard of its clients. They include European car manufacturers such as Mercedes and BMW, General Motors and Ford in North America, and Chinese firms like Neo, Bird and Lotus. ZF actually says there are virtually no cars now that don't contain at least some of its parts. It calls itself the world's largest provider of mobility technology, making transmissions and other systems for passenger cars, commercial vehicles and industrial uses. And it's also on the innovation front, developing a new type of electric motor that doesn't require the use of rare earth materials. And that certainly caught my attention. Joining us now from the International Motor Show in Munich is Holger Klein, chairman and CEO of the ZF Group. Holger, fantastic to have you on the show. (laughs) Welcome. Now, you've been at the uh, steering wheel of this company, I believe now, for nine months at a a hugely transformational time for the industry itself, whether it's the acceleration of technology, the shift to EV and, and hybrid, competition globally, supply chain challenges. How do you focus the company to thrive in this environment? That's really a very good question. Yeah, And let me first state what you said. We are a global tech company, 160,000 uh, people in my team. And we are the third largest automotive supplier. Yeah, And the change, the transformation the auto industry is in is enormous. And it's gaining speed. Yeah, And so, for example, the move to battery electric is a challenge for the entire industry. The F, you know, in 2015... We were with 60% of our revenues dependent on ICE components, internal combustion engines. Now it's only in 2022, 27%. And that tells you a story. So we are fundamentally shifting portfolios. And one of those topics here is innovation, the world premiere 
of our e-motor, rare earth free, no magnets. And why is that important? You know, first of all, re you reduce the carbon footprint of uh, the production by 50% by replacing rare earths. And then, of course, you talked a lot about geopolitics and supply chain turmoils. Yeah, you are de-risking the supply chain enormously. And last but not least, uh, one part is it's ultra compact and ultra light. So it really can replace standard engines as you know them to them uh, today in your battery electric vehicle. Yeah, I have to admit, we've talked about this a number of times on the show, and, and my view is we're effectively risking swapping um, one controller of energy like an OPEC for perhaps another in our need as we ramp up with electric vehicles and um, hydrogen fuel cells on the reliance of those providers of rare earth minerals. Just compare the cost for me of the uh, motor that you're creating versus the traditional form that we're pushing in, at least at this stage. Is it similar in terms of cost? How does it compare? It, it is similar, yeah, and it will be similar. Of course, it needs to gain in scale. You know, now we produced about two and a half million electric motors over the past now with magnets, and now we need to scale up this world premiere. It's not in serious production yet. Yeah, but, you know, the F has an order volume of roughly 30 billion in its books, and if you now think of the scaling, then it can become very, very comparable to uh, conventional e-motors like we know them today. Yeah, and I, I wouldn't be a true car driver if I didn't ask you about performance. If the price is comparable, <laughs> that's good. What about performance? Yes. Performance per kilogram, we would say exactly the same. Yeah, wow. so uh, you can have a sports car and you can feel good because you don't uh, consume errors. Okay. So the other thing, so we've got in the um, electric motor avenue is is chips. And I think what we saw fundamentally during the pandemic was um, our reliance on supply chains around the world and how that can create the, a problem for the entire industry if we don't ensure that. Talk to me about the deal with the United States and the fact that I know um, you're now producing and researching in Germany as a result of um, Wolfspeed's investment, which is um, exciting, I think, to say the least. What's it going to mean for your business? Exactly, Julia. I mean, we are facing uh, turmoil. Yeah, so uh, I wouldn't call it deglobalization because I still believe multilateralism is a way to go. But at least we are getting more local for local, more local for local in China, more local for local in the US and North America, and more for local for local in Europe. And as one part of it, if you think about the supply chain for a e-drive chain, silicon carbide becomes very important, yeah? because in the inverter where you transform the energy, it can gain enormous efficiency, it can give you range in a battery electric vehicle, and it will be good for fast charging. That's what our consumers at the end, the car drivers need. Yeah? And in that uh, knowledge, us leading the pack with 800 volts silicium carbide um, e-engines, we uh, decided to partner with Wolfspeed, and Wolfspeed is very well known in the silicium carbide, carbide. and uh, we will build a fab in, uh, in Germany and a lab in Germany to drive forward the innovation cycle for these silicium carbide ships. 
Yeah, it's interesting what you said as well about the um, the idea of globalization or just making your supply chains more centric to the region that we're talking about. Because, of course, you as a company have been involved with um, Chinese auto manufacturers and working in China now for, for, for many years. Just given that wisdom and experience, can I ask you, and I don't know whether you saw it, the UBS report that came out last week that said um, traditional car manufacturers like Volkswagen, Honda, Renault, are going to lose more than 20% of their market share by 2030 to the Chinese makers, some of your clients, let's be clear, because they're already 25% cheaper and they're innovating quicker. Holger, what's your view on that, whether it's pricing or the innovation or the speed at which they're moving and competing? So I would invite you to come over to Munich if you can, and you would see if you come to do the ZF booth or if you go to the OEMs here, the race is far from over. Yeah, so I would be very careful to say those are the winners or those are the losers. There's pure innovation now coming into the industry. And therefore, I would say they all are transforming the companies. They are all transforming the way we drive cars, we experience cars. And by the way, this increased competition, I think it's good. Yeah, because competition drives innovation. And for us, perhaps as car buyers as well, it increases the portfolio you can pick from. Small cars, sport cars, SUVs, whatsoever. So it's a wider range. And that's not bad per se, right? Yes, I think you're also a diplomat, sir, because you would never pick winners and losers when they're all your clients. Um, but I do wonder we whether it's. <laughs> I, just, I just wonder whether it's. Um, I know what you're doing. Um, I just wonder whether it is ultimately a challenge for you if everybody is competing, particularly on cost, because you know they pushed that requirement to cut costs down the supply chain, and that is at the heart of, of what you do in the, in the technology and the, the software and what you provide in terms of parts. Do you worry that it means margin compression down the line as they fight to compete for you? Of course, yeah, and that's where we need to continuously increase competitiveness. Yeah, there's no island where you can rest and watch the industry moving. We need to move fast and the best way to succeed is run faster than the others. And that, of course, means, if you ask me, the toughest part of the transformation is still ahead of us. Yeah, We need to adjust structures. We need to talk about where are we competitive and where are we not competitive. And if we can't transform our companies, then we might ultimately not be successful. Therefore, fully right toughest time still ahead. Yes, a perfect place to end the conversation. Holger, we will reconvene, I know, and I love your enthusiasm. Nine months in, I can see you're, uh, you're very excited about what's to come. Great to chat to you, sir, and have fun there. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you sir. Julia. Holger Bye -bye. Klein, the CEO of ZF Group there. Thank you. Okay, coming up here on First Move, move over LVMH. A drug maker is now Europe's most valuable firm with its magic bullet for obesity. All the details on that next. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running for the first time after the long Labor Day break. Call it, if you will, a laborious 
Libra Rose open. The major averages little changed in early trading. A more cautious atmosphere, as you can see, after last week's solid gains. All prices shooting higher in the past hour on word that Saudi Arabia is keeping production cuts of some one million barrels of oil per day in place until the end of the year. U.S. crude currently up more than 2% and Brent crude now surpassing $90 a barrel. Also today, investors gearing up for what's expected to be one of the biggest IPOs on Wall Street this year. Chip design firm Arm now expected to raise some $4.8 billion when it begins trading on the Nasdaq later this month. That's lower, actually, than previous estimates. That's a sign of the times. The IPO will give Arm a valuation of around $52 billion. Arm, of course, being spun off from Japan's SoftBank Group. And... Danish drug maker Novo Nordisk dethroning luxury goods giant LVMH as the most valuable company in Europe. The shares have soared 40% this year thanks to huge demand for its weight loss drugs, Ozempic and Wegovi. The CEO telling CNN it will take years to catch up to current demand. Meg Terrell joins us now. Megan, that is exactly what I was going to ask you. And congratulations. This is an amazing interview at a very important time. Um, The comments that he made simply about the issues they've got in keeping up with the sheer amount of people that want to take these drugs, despite the cost. Yeah, Julia, I mean, these are very expensive drugs in the United States. Their cost is more than $1,300 per month without insurance. Uh, But they are incredibly popular, so much so that they've said they can't keep up with demand. We thought that might last a few months. The CEO telling us in a sit-down interview, it's going to be potentially a lot longer than that. Take a listen. I think you've limited some of the starter doses uh, for patients uh, trying to begin the medicine so that you can supply patients who are already on the medicine at the higher doses. How long do you expect that to have to continue? Yeah, we decided to limit those starter doses because it's really important for us that patients who start on treatment can try to trade up to the maintenance doses. When will this stop? Um, Well, if I knew how big the demand would end up uh, being, uh, I, I could tell you. But I have the sense that it could actually take quite some years before we have actually fulfilled the demand out there. Hmm. There's more than 100 million Americans living with a BMI of above 30. And many of those would like to be on treatment. Hmm. We are just uh, scratching the surface. Now, Julia, another issue with these medicines, of course, that everybody asks about is can you ever stop taking them? And so far, the data have suggested you have to stay on them in order to sustain the weight loss that we see. We asked the CEO what their data has shown about that in studies. Here's what he told us. We have studies showing that there is sustained weight loss over up to two years. But we also started showing that if you stop treatment, your weight will come back. Mm. So I think it's important also to note here that, uh, like those who live with obesity would know, obesity is a a chronic uh, disease, Uh, just like high blood pressure or type 2 diabetes. uh, You need to keep treating it, else the symptoms will come back. Hmm. How do you address the the suggestion that a weight loss drug should be temporary? I would say that that's that's based on uh, a flawed logic around uh, what is obesity? Mm. One can speculate over years of, uh, of maintained weight loss. Would that change your body's set point in terms of what is uh, your perceived normal weight? We are all built by nature to store energy, to store fat for, say, uh, a cold winter or whatever. Um, 
And maybe we can address that over time, but all the evidence so far uh, indicates that it's actually chronic treatment. Hmm. Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. My, my mind's blowing up. Um, a third of Americans, basically, with a BMI above 30, arguably could be taking this. $16,000 a year to be able to afford it. And him basically saying you could be on this for life and, and you keep going, assuming you've got the money for it. Um, no wonder the share price looks the way it is. It, it looks undervalued based on those kind of metrics. Meg, what about side effects? Yeah, Can that we is talk? Yeah, it's, it's a it's a huge question that a lot of people have. And we know that tolerability for the drugs is kind of an issue The sort of nausea and vomiting you can feel when you start them. But what about bigger side effects and particularly over the long term, if you really have to take these potentially for life? One thing that CNN has reported on is the idea of stomach paralysis. We've talked to a few patients who said they experienced this. It has not been proven to be caused by the drugs, but we asked him specifically what they are seeing there. Here's what he said. So I can only say that we as a company uh, take safety very seriously and we're also obliged to uh, collect all, all data that we become aware of. And uh, when we look at the totality of that data, uh, we feel that it's a very you know, well understood mechanism and it's also uh, safe and efficacious uh, based on, on the label. Uh, obviously, when you get into, uh, say, very large patient uh, populations and have millions of patients using uh, your medicine, you have different types of, of medical conditions among those patients. Um, and, and sometimes then uh, it's, uh, it's, you know, a, a causality is being mentioned. And of course, we have to look into that. But so far, there's nothing in, in what we can see that indicates uh, any particular, uh, say, safety concerns uh, like what we talked about here. Mm. So, Julia, these drugs are shaping up to potentially be the biggest class of medicines of all time. And so these questions about safety, how long you have to take them, and, of course, how much they cost, whether people can access them, will continue to be huge questions. Yeah, I'm still, I'm still <laughs> grappling with the maths in my mind. And I, I do think there's a bigger conversation here to have about perhaps nutrition and exercise. And I know we can come back to these conversations again, but um, as good as it is for them and they've found some kind of solution... Um, bigger picture I'm not sure it's the answer of well I know it's not the answer because we can't afford it Meg I could keep you here for an hour and we could debate it but <laughs> I've got to go great job great interview thank, thank you. you so much yeah fascinating Meg Tyrell there okay and finally nearly a year after her passing a commemorative coin has been revealed honoring Queen Elizabeth II at least they're calling it a coin but it's really the size of a large dinner plate it's made from almost eight pounds of gold, contains around 6,400 diamonds, and it took more than a year to produce. It's dubbed the crown coin, and it's valued at around $23 million. I wonder how many of those were actually made. Wowzers. Um, and the real finally, finally. Call it a burning desire to get out of Burning Man. Let me just show you this because you're going to look at some satellite pictures of the Burning Man Festival area in the Nevada desert. Now, partygoers who gathered for the week-long event are finally now being allowed to leave after heavy rain forced roads to close and turned the site into a mud bath. Truly a mass exodus as something like 72,000 people who I'm sure are seriously in need of a shower to wipe off some of that mud, rush to get home. The Burning Man, more like an exhausted man or woman at this point. 
And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my X and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. Connect the World is up next, and I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.